This is the Cinematologist Podcast, episode 109, Sports Documentaries. In this episode, Dario talks to the film director, Finley Pretzel, about his cycling documentary, Time Trial, A Race to the End, which focuses on the Scottish cyclist, David Miller. Neil and Dario also discuss some of the classics of the genre, including Senna, When We Were Kings, Zidane, A 21st Century Portrait, and particularly McEnroe in the realm of perfection. We explore the question, what is it about cinema that can make sports cinematic? Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined, as always, by Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Yeah, joined finally. Finally. What a palaver that was. We're supposed to start taping at one o'clock. That's 40 minutes of mucking around with the internet and various connections. It's The digital age is just so wonderful, and then until it all basically conks out and you yeah. have no idea what to do. Yeah, everything's great until it's not. And then you're like, what do we do? Yeah, crazy time. <laughs> we actually phoned each other then. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> like, that's what we resorted to. Back, back, back in 1987, we just phoned each yeah. other, yeah. Um, but I'm well. Yeah, I'm good. Um, really stoked a little bit. I, I think like yourself, in terms of the last few weeks of output with the podcast and the reactions we've been getting, it's been really... Nice to to see that the the podcast has sort of been popping up and various aspects of it has been uh, popping up all over the place and uh, yeah getting some really good feedback so very very nice to to see and hear that yeah it's been a lovely a lovely few weeks indeed and yeah sort of starting with the Peter Bogdanovich episode which still feels like a high point and then yeah just the the theme tune has exploded um been played on six music and featured in the guardian which are just kind of great things in terms of yeah again sort of going back to sort of what we thought five years ago and where we are now it's kind of amazing and then yeah we got mentioned in the sight and sound editor's choice for their weekly newsletter in terms of a, got a really nice little quote there and recommendation so it feels like yeah i mean it's always been great it's not to say like because yeah. it was you, you always feel bad like oh now now we've made yeah. it and i don't think we've made it in any sense but it's with all of the the labour and the endeavour, they're just nice things that just kind of move you into a different space and make you re-energised and, and reminded why the amount of work is 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 kind of important because that's new audiences, you know, that's new people who haven't who haven't heard us yet, and yeah, it's been a really great response, and we've also got some new patreons as well from from the last couple of weeks. In a way, it's that the audience part is part of it. It always is, but it's also recognition from peers. I mean, I'm not a huge one for awards anyway and that's really you know it's easy to say when you don't win any awards but we don't enter them even and and I I always think that you're on a hiding to nothing when you start sort of chasing that but it, when you get sort of peer recognition and I was just in a another call with um, Jose Arroyo who does the eavesdropping at the movies podcast and you know he invited me into just one of his one of his student sessions just to talk about podcasting and stuff like that and he was very complimentary about the the, the podcast and just little little sort of comments like that are really gratifying and then as you say you know new patreons uh, martin feld bradley clark and jade um wooten who we her work we we um we linked to in the newsletter so it was really nice that she joined up the patreon so welcome to all of those guys and yeah we hope you enjoy the bonus content as ever if you want to read the newsletter and uh, neil's 
next up in terms of the the main missive but then you get recommendations obviously from both of us and they started pretty pretty brief but they they just kind of get bigger and bigger don't they i mean we just don't know when to stop sometimes yeah i mean i think mine might be quite brief this month um and so i think i'm i'm worded out a lot but you know okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing kind of well i'm doing the book but uh yeah i think what's been interesting is that which is i think why people really like it i think you know we've had a lot of good feedback from the 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 subscribers in terms of their engagement with it is because we've not just taking it as a as a selling space you know it's become a space where we really start really try and get into certain things that we're thinking about each month continuing discussions and kind of circling back to things it's become a really useful space for working out ideas and thoughts and and knowing that there's an engaged listenership now readership has been really really valuable so yeah it really means a lot that people you know subscribe that helps support the podcast but then also read and, and engage with that with that space it's been it's, it's something i look forward to each month is sitting down and, and working through that that material yeah it's kind of like a different space to everything else it's not just you know doing blogs and we've both been sort of blogging this month as well but it just has a different feel about it because it's there is an audience but it's a it's a narrow audience and we kind of know a lot of the people now but even the people we don't know i think that they they understand what it is and therefore it's nice to write in a in a, in a different kind of tone i think it is for a select group so those people who do subscribe it is literally for them but that then provides a a space for yourself to be able to engage with ideas in in, in ways that you perhaps know that there's a, an audience that are ready for a certain kind of writing yeah no, no i think that's a i think that's a good way to put it Cool. So today we have our long-awaited sports documentary episode. Um, And this is something I've been kind of going on about for about a year, maybe. (laughs) And I can't even remember now, Neil. Do you you remember what triggered this, me starting this? Was it because we were talking about documentaries more generally and then there were sporting events going on? I can't can't, can't even remember. I think it was a particular film that kind of triggered it. And I can't remember which one it was. don't know if it was the McEnroe doc. Um, Maybe oh, it was Diego Maradona. Maradona. Yeah, that was it. When that came yeah. out, yeah, of course, yeah, because I wanted to talk about Senna. Um, so yeah, it was just I think something that really sort of sparked my interest was because Diego Maradona was a kind of figure from my childhood. At that time, I remember in the eighties, there was just no question that Diego Maradona was the best footballer in the world. It was just not even a, a conversation really at the time when I was really heavily into the sports and. With watching that and then watching Senna earlier on, I remember Senna having a big impact on me. I was interested in the way that that cinema made sports cinematic as opposed to the reason you watch on TV is slightly different to the the reason you watch them for cinema. I was sort of interested in working working through that. And I know that you're a kind of football guy growing up. And I have a, a very... I've thought a lot about my relationship to sport from when I was a kid because I wasn't one for big team sports yeah I did play I did play football and rugby for a little while but I've always been more interested in in individual sports tennis and golf were the two that I played when I was a kid and also I came to cinema and I came to art after sports you know all of that stuff and my intellectual life came later so whenever I'm engaging with sports I always have this recognition back to that's the original the original subject that I am in a way so it's kind of working through and sort of talking about all those things was interesting to me and then got the opportunity to speak to Finley Pretzel who is the the director of 
the cycling documentary Time Trial, which is currently on the BBC iPlayer. And I first saw that maybe a couple of years ago at a screening room in Soho when it was just coming out. And I was really impressed by the way it attempted to kind of immerse you within the feeling of being within the race, which is quite a difficult thing to do and, and not the approach that, that most cycling documentaries and most doc- sports documentaries more broadly were were taking. So yeah, that's that's sort of where I was coming from on, on this. And you were up for it as well in terms of being interested in sports documentaries as a as a subset of, of, of documentary and cinema. Yeah, and I think that the origin story is quite similar really in the sense of the one of my kind of formative memories of, of watching football is in the 86 World Cup, which is when I was getting into football, got into football sort of around 85. And there was glimpses during the coverage of the 86 World Cup, of the 82 World Cup film. FIFA makes these films, I think, maybe yeah. on 35 mil, yeah. which they shoot, you know, every World Cup. And then in the following World Cup, you see glimpses. I mean, they never showed in Luton. I don't know if they ever showed in cinemas, but or even what they're for, but they would always show you clips from the previous World Cup that were these beautiful filmed sequences with no audio, uh, no commentary that really kind of acted as this, yeah, memory, elevation, really beautiful portrayal of, of the sport. And one of the things I really want to talk about is... And not TV. Not TV, no. They weren't... It wasn't just like watching... You weren't yeah. watching the game for the game to see who wins and then have someone no, talk over the top of it. you weren't. You're watching... A, a memory and a capturing of an event and the the moments of that event in a really yeah really poetic way and that really struck me i think that's when i'm thinking about this episode i've really been thinking about that that kind of merging like you say of sport and cinema in a really formative way and that's that's what's drawn me to particular sports documentaries is, as much as anything is the form you know and i do want to talk about the use of celluloid in, in sports documentaries which i think is a really key part of the, the cinematic kind of nature of them. So yeah, I've been really excited to, to to talk about this. And yeah, when I was listening to the 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 great interview that you've done with with Finley, when you mentioned Zidane, I was like, ah oh, yes, you know that's that's a film which I think is is a remarkable piece of work. So there's lots and lots to 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 get into today. I'm really excited. And I, yeah, it's been a long time coming, but I think it's it's really great that it's coming now because of obviously people being able to see Time Trial and um, yeah. And uh, and something else that's happening in the news as well, which I think is really interesting to talk about in terms of sports characters and and their their extension beyond the sports arena. So yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, we'll we'll come on to lots of detail about that um, in a little while. But first of all, you've got one of your regular slots of uh, um, films to talk about in terms of coming from the BFI. And where else have you have you been sent films from? Uh, uh, Masters of Cinema and Eureka. Um, the usual suspects, yeah. So Neil's roundup. Do 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 do. Yeah. So three three films: one BFI and two Masters of Cinema in the kind of the horror genre. So obviously it's October, so it's Halloween, so Shocktober, as people like to like to call it um, in terms of the month when everyone just watches a lot of horror movies. So some of the releases are um, the BFI are releasing John Parker's 1955 Dementia which is a 50-minute kind of pulp fever dream with no dialogue, um, kind of, which kind of follows a young woman's kind of dark night of the soul. Really strange film, um, a very kind of hallucinatory experience, very expressionistic, really interesting. And one of the most interesting things, it's got this pre-film title card recommendation by Preston Sturges. 
and you're watching it, you think, how how Preston Sturges found this film and found some. It's just you know, it's a really strange kind of pairing, but yeah, a, a curio to say the least. Um, and yeah, a really interesting film uh, that the BFI are putting out. And then Masters of Cinema. I asked for a copy of Nine Seven Six Evil, which is a, a film directed by Robert Englund uh, of Freddy Cougar fame from the late '80s. It's a weird movie, a great turn by Sandy Dennis um, in, in kind of famous Sandy Dennis, 50s and 60s actress uh, and 70s actress as a kind of crazed aunt. And it's the story of, a, I think you would probably now in common parlance call a men's rights activist um, who calls a satanic uh, hotline to get a girl um, and then kill a girl. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a weird movie and there's a really, really creepy spider sequence, but it looks great. And it's a lot of fun. And it's it's a reminder of, well, it's probably not a reminder of, it's it's further sort of acknowledgement that a lot of the films that I saw when I started watching movies sort of late 80s, early 90s properly, which I thought were kind of serious horror films, weren't serious horror films at all. You know, they're really leaning into the trashy camp, you know, humour of, of of the opportunity rather than, than delivering a lot of this stuff straight face. And I thought it might have been straight face at the time, which is why I didn't think it was very good. And now it's clear there's a lot of knowingness in this film particularly, and it really leans into the humour and the kind of campness of it, uh, which is which is a lot of fun. And they also sent me this film called Sleepwalkers, which is an early 90s Stephen King adaptation, which is just frankly ludicrous and just needs to be seen to be believed. Um, <laughs> just, But again, kind of leans into the, the comedy. Um, it's a kind of cat people, teen wolf, weird, um, very incestuous film, which kind of just, just took me completely by surprise. And... There's a great turn by the, the actor who played Otho from Beetlejuice, um, who anytime he turns up in a film, I'm always, I'm always excited. But you're in for it. I mean, yeah, just you just know you know what you're watching when he's <laughs> when he's in, and he's a very he's a plays a, a teacher in this, and it's uh, yeah, it's wonderfully juicy scene chewing. But as it, it's quite funny, and it's you know it's kind of fun, but it's got cameos from Joe Dante, Joe, John Landis, Toby Hooper, and uh, Clive Barker. And the problem is that when you when you're bringing in kind of the the doyens of comedy horror and straight horror, and you're kind of bringing them into the universe, you're going to judge the film on their those terms, you know. And it's not American Werewolf in London or Gremlins, and it's not Hellraiser, it's not Texas Chainsaw. So, although it's nice to see them turn up, it kind of reminds you actually what you're watching is is very very slight. Um, and Stephen King turns up, which you either like when Stephen King turns up in his own adaptations or you don't. So yeah, but good, good fun, very diversionary um, kind of fair, and uh, both the both films look really great, particularly Nine Seven Six Evil, which, for all of its kind of campness and it's a well shot, nicely designed film, you know, kind of there's a Robert England had an eye that it's a shame he didn't get to explore more, I think, as a director. And the other sure. one was a film that I think we both watched maybe, which is completely different, although kind of horrific in its own way. Yeah, yeah, no, I caught it the other night. Which is uh, yeah, Faisal Balufa's uh, Lynn and Lucy. Yeah, interesting because I um I, I watched uh, Rocks at the cinema recently, and there's definitely a kind of social realist connection between the two. Um, and again, it was it it was an interesting one this because I I, I found it quite tough, I must say. And and in in the latter day period of social realism, I think that I I don't know whether I'm kind of get I get burned now when. There's almost at times an assumption you have to be kind of like, oh, you know, bow down, social realism, real people struggling. This is what the real world is is like. 
And I, I think sometimes, you know, that the political adoration from the left of somebody like Ken Loach, you know, is all is all well and good. And he's made some amazing films, don't get me wrong, and, you know, massive influence on British cinema. But the kind of didacticism and the, the clunkiness, I think, of some of the films in latter films, let's say, is very much there. And I, I, I didn't, I really enjoyed Rocks. I thought that that got that balance right. And here I kind of, it, it was a funny one because I was just torn between at times feeling like some of the characters were just real. Stereotypes is not quite the right world, but they were performing a function politically in the film. And that kept taking me out of the of the drama. And more and more as I get older, you realise where you come from as a person really affects the, the things that you see when, when you recognise something on screen. And like coming from a council estate in Leeds and spending my entire life trying to get away from that, you know what I mean? Makes this kind of stuff really sort of difficult to watch for me. And yeah, I mean, it's not, I can't say kind of like I loved it or I, I enjoyed it. I respected what it was trying to do. And yeah, there's sort of, sort of horrific elements in it. And I think some of the, the complicated decision-making the, the central character has to make is interesting. But yeah, I mean, one of those ones I'm, I'm kind of... Yeah, I can see what it is. I can see what it's trying to do. But it didn't sort of grab me in that in that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult film to engage with. And I think intentionally so, kind of intentionally kind of confrontational in terms of how it's presenting those characters and... And kind of what they go through. One of the things that struck me about it was, which I, I think is is one of those things when you watch a first feature and you think, okay, that could be a trajectory which pays off in future films. You know, was it reminded me in those almost kind of caricatures and kind of functional characters of Ben Wheatley's work, particularly in Kill List and and, and Colin Bursted, where there's subtle plays with genre. You know, there's a kind of single white female element in the middle where you're kind of there's this relationship which like you say this this character is kind of in a very difficult position and the psychology between her and her friend is is kind of really fraught and then it almost becomes a kind of clique movie you know where these she kind of befriends the cool gang yeah you know, the hairdressers yeah. and stuff and she kind of gets taken in and, and she kind of gets pulled away and almost seduced by that the possibility of that life but that ends badly and um the tragic, you know, like you say, that the escape that you've had as someone, the same, same way that I've had, you know, in terms of my upbringing in Luton, is, is not available to a lot of people. And that's a really difficult thing. And then the psychological space that char- character takes at the end, where she's kind of left in this weird space based on her, the actions that she's undertaken and what's undertaken for her, kind of felt very, very uncomfortable in a, you know, so I, I saw quite a lot of it in it that I thought, oh, this is interesting takes on on this material but very very subtle i was thinking i'd like to rewatch it to get that sense because on the surface it's a very harrowing film you know it's not just like your own personal psychology or background and things like, like that it's like sitting down at the end of the day in the world today to, to watch a film like yeah. that is really hard you know if you were if you were in berlin and you're outside of outside of the uk and sort of oh i'm going to watch this social realist drama from the uk that that might give you a sort of bit of dif- distance to be able to to kind of not judge it, but but to engage with it maybe in it on a slightly different level, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that part of the difficulty of watching it is 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 that acknowledgement of wanting to pull away, you know, and just be like, I can't, I can't, I can't face this. But the form, I think, <laughs> makes you really realise. I think you know the four by three, the video, like or the digital, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of really makes you confront the fact that this is this is the reality. And are you are you be? And I, I certainly felt like to 
to step away would be disrespectful and to, to, to do what everyone's doing. But it takes a lot out of you. And I, I don't mind that in cinema. I think that's a, an important function of it. But it, yeah. it definitely takes an investment. And I think it's a film that you, need, you definitely need to be in the right space for. But but rewards that, I think. I, I'd be really interested to see what you made of rocks in, in terms of the comparison with the way that the characters talk to each other. Because that was, the, I mean, that's the thing, I think, where the difference is. In Rocks, I felt that these were real relationships and real real interactions that, that felt that they were capturing capturing a mood between between people and an understanding and a misunderstanding and a conflict and all of those things that, that relationships are about. Whereas this was kind of like setting up things to think about. Yeah, there's one scene that does that particularly, I think. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the main difference, I think, in it yeah. for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's worth checking out, and it's on the it's on the uh, BFI player, isn't it? So um, it's available to, to to stream. Yeah, and released on Blu-ray as well. Yeah. So. Cool. So um, with that uh, completed, Neil's roundup section done. <laughs> we can, we'll move into talking about. Um, we maybe need a little jingle there. You, you know, we can, we're not that lo-fi that you need to sing. Although you know, that's fine too. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, let, let's get into the main portion of the the podcast and the main subject, which is of course sports documentaries. And before we come to the the interview or we get into the interview, I thought it'd be good if we think maybe a little bit about what the sports documentary is, particularly in the cinematic context. And then I think later on we may talk about sort of the renaissance or the expansion of sports documentaries, particularly in the era of streaming across Netflix and, and Prime, because they've really taken that on board I think and I think there's some interesting reasons for that but I was thinking the other night about what sports documentaries I've watched over the last 10 days or so and there's been a lot and how they might fit into categories of what they're trying to achieve or what they're basing the interest in the sport around it's fascinating because it's easy to sort of come up with a broad taxonomy but these things they cross boundaries a lot, both in terms of what they're doing formally and what they're doing in terms of content. So there's obviously a lot of expose documentaries around and, and Icarus, Brian Fogel's doc about about the, the doping, the Russian scientist and um, WADA and all that kind of thing was one I watched the other night and that had a big impact. Did it win the Oscar? It was definitely up there nominated. Yeah, I can't remember it? it won actually, yeah. Um, I feel like it did. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. But it's th- that that's really interesting because and it's got a, a fascinating couple of central characters in it and it's one of those films that starts off as one thing and then becomes something else which is always interesting when that when that happens and then recently i watched um athlete a on netflix which is directed by bonnie cohen and john Schenk. and a few years from a few years ago the armstrong lie you know everything related to to armstrong has this expose element to it which is alex Gibney, uh, who is obviously a, a well-known documentary then you've got autobiographical docs and again, this is one of the things I think that's come with the era of streaming. So there's this one about Andy Murray called Resurfacing, which is, you know, about his operation and then coming back to the sport. And then I think The Last Dance is is very autobiographical when you consider what the, the control that Michael Jordan has had over it purportedly. Although I don't, I don't think that undermines the documentary in the way that some people have, have talked about. Then there's biographical documentaries, so it's almost coming from the outside. And I think Asif Kapadia's work on Senna and Diego Maradona would fall into that category. And then Erskine's film on Marco Pantani is another example of, of that. And I think I Am Ali is very much a biographical documentary in the way that is slightly different to When We Were Kings, which I see as more of a sort of 
triumphant, you know, star-based overview of of a of a star's life. That I mean, one week with Kings was interesting because it, it it does jump around in terms of um, approaches. I think. Then you've got ones that are very much focused on social and political context. Again, when we were Kings is part of that. But Battle of the Sexes, Zara Hayes' documentary about the, the Bobby Riggs-Billie Jean King match in the 70s, which is really good fun. Everybody should watch that for sure. And then there are sort of more observational documentaries. And I think what you mentioned, Neil, the, these ones that are the, the films of the World Cup, because they are mirrored by, by the Olympic films like Tokyo Olympiad the Conny Chikawa film, which is very, there's almost no, I don't think there's any commentary on it at all. And it's 35 mil shot and a lot of slow-mo and you really get this this sort of texture. And maybe even Hoop Dreams is not shot on film, but it's, I think it, it does fall into an observational category in a similar vein, I think. And then you've got maybe experimental or experiential docs. And I think Time Trial, the, the film that we're kind of focusing on today, is an example of that. And Zidane, you mentioned that. And then this great doc, which I really want to talk to you about later on, John McEnroe in the realm, in the realm of perfection, is very much a sort of experimental type of, of documentary. But with all of that in mind, and like I say, those categories do cross each other. I just wondered what you thought about this expectation of when you come to a, a, a film documentary or a, a cinematic documentary, as, a, as opposed to just watching the sport on television. What is it you're looking for in a, in a cinematic documentary? I think... The first thing is, yeah, is a, is a kind of distinction between the sport and the competition. You sort of mentioned it in the interview with Finley that kind of the, the outcome is is secondary. That the outcome is is kind of best suited to a live, your live live sport watching. I think often with all the sports documentaries talking there, if you're in, half interested, you kind of know the ending. So you're not interested in whether Ali beats Frazier or you know what happens to Senna because you kind of know that. So. What you're interested in is the, is the sport, the vessel of having a greater appreciation and understanding of the sport through usually, and in most of the cases, an elite practitioner. You know, someone who you watch in a live context because you there's I watch a, I've watched a few football games more than once. But generally, that's because of the result and the, the memory of where I was when I was watching it or the experience of watching it. But, but generally, you're not really watching how people do that. But you do that in a live space. So if I go to a football match... I'm kind of watching one or two players a lot of the time. I used to love watching Paul Scholes because he just played the game at a different, in a different, completely different space to everyone else. You know, and you're watching individuals, and that's what the cinematic experience is: spending time with those individuals and trying to see what made them tick, or how they did what they did, and the kind of yeah, kind of seeing that process that led to that led to the result, or in a lot, in a lot of cases, didn't. I think that's what what's really interesting about particularly the McEnroe film that we'll kind of talk about later, and the, and Senna as well. No one's really, no one's really exempt from what what he won and what he lo- lost is kind of secondary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a big part of it, and also, yeah, that the the handling of it, how you choose to tell the story, and this is where it kind of aligns with with music docs for me, where those kind of interests is 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 are you are you using the form of cinema to capture the essence and spirit in your own way of of what that sports person means. Like when you watch When We Were Kings, it feels like you're watching a film about Muhammad Ali. You know, it's got something about it in terms of its scope and its size and its, you know, its kind of confidence that matches cinematically the subject that that it's about. It is befitting that I leave the game just like I came in, beating a big, bad monster who knocks out everybody and no one can whoop him. 
That's when that little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky came up and stopped Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill me. But he hit harder than George. His reach was longer than George. He was a better boxer than George. And I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sonny Liston. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaws been broke, been knocked down a couple of times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night, I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to show you how great I am. Hell, I think Ollie was scared. I think he was scared even then. And he knew he was going to be very scared as he got closer and closer to the fight. So you wait, George fights. George comes out with I'll name him the mummy. <laughs> with his ego, he could keep telling himself that he would dominate Foreman, that he would beat him, that he would dance, that he would make a fool of him, that he would show him superior boxing, that Foreman would never lay a glove on him. But in fact, in his sleep or wherever his private moment came, he had to know that he had not done nearly as well against two fighters particularly, Joe Fraser and Ken Norton, whom Foreman had demolished. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be. Foreman is going about his job. He Foreman had an overpowering intensity when he punched. Foreman had won his championship by knocking Joe Fraser out and uh, knocked him down something like seven times. Uh, then he uh, destroyed Ken Norton in two rounds. The word murderous is not, does not quite apply. Foreman was awesome. This chump has got everybody scared. Scared of what? Nothing to be scared of. Scared of what? That's important to me, you know, and it's important to me because I think that if you're taking these people who are titans, then you need to formally acknowledge that rather than just be like, here's this bit, then this bit, then this bit, because they're not standard. They're not standard people in their arena. So I don't want to see a standard portrayal. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's totally true. I mean, I, I, I rewatched When We Were Kings and, you know, I love a lot of sports documentaries and, you know, I, I do want to talk about the McEnroe one later on. But as a complete film, I don't think there's a sports documentary to, to match When We Were Kings because I think it does this because it's, it is a music doc as well. And it also, um, it has that thing where it's got a, it's got a literary credibility with it with commentators like Norman Mailer who wrote the fight so it's alluding to that without mentioning it and there's just some amazing moments where you get Ali being Ali right and you almost don't need anybody to comment on that but then you get people like George Plimpton and Norman Mailer who are setting this up for you and there's just that amazing moment at the beginning of the first at the beginning of the fight and he sort of describes the end of the first round and what Muhammad Ali did, and it's it's absolutely wonderful to to listen to. That punch did no damage. That one did. Two wild white hands taken on the side of the head of Muhammad Ali. 
is a real strong right hand just underneath the heart. And Muhammad Ali is taking some punishment now. About eight seconds left in the round. Bell rang. Ali went back to the corner. He finally, the nightmare he'd been awaiting in the ring had finally come to visit him. He was in the ring with a man he could not dominate, who was stronger than him, who was not afraid of him, who was going to try to knock him out, and who punched harder than Ali could punch. And this man was determined and unstoppable. And Ali had a look on his face that I'll never forget. It's the only time I ever saw fear in Ali's eyes. Ali looked as if he looked into himself and said, all right, this is the moment. This is what you've been waiting for. This is that hour. And do you have the guts? And he kind of nodded to himself like, you got to get it together, boy. You really got to get it together. And you are going to get it together. You will get it together. And he nodded some more, looking at as if he were looking into his make the eyes of his maker. And then he turned to the crowd and he went, Ali Bomier. And 100,000 people all yelled back, Ali Bomier. And this huge reverberation of the crowd came back into the ring. And Ali picked it up almost as if these are my people. This is what I'm here for. All right, the time has come. I'm going to find a way to master this man. Ali tries to tie him up. And it's like you say that there's at least an attempt, and usually a successful attempt, to to play sport within a wider context that kind of lifts it out of just being a fan. You know, and music docs do the same thing. I think when they're really good, is like you say, you're putting it in a different space, and sometimes it feels lofty. You know, the Zidane film does that in a in a great way, kind of where how you're how you're deciding to contextualize this stuff. But but for the most part, these are significant people in in history in their field, or particularly in Ali's case, like you couldn't make a film that was just about boxing because he was never just about boxing. So, but he was amazing at it, which is just this kind of extraordinary thing where he's both the best, but also a, a kind of huge figure outside of the ring and. That's that's interesting. You know, that's that's what made time trial interesting as well, because it was it didn't it didn't feel like I haven't seen any of the, the Lance Armstrong films because I'm not fussed about seeing that. But that this felt like I was watching something where it was trying to it was trying to get at through its form why these people do what they do and really put you in that space of what it what it is to do that, which feels bigger than just getting on a bike and, and kind of cycling up a mountain. <laughs> you know, there's a real kind of human there's a humanity to it, which is bigger than than the sport i think that's the the question of why sports documentaries may cross over because i think sometimes the the problem that maybe sports documentarians or the the idea of making a film the barrier that they're up against is is the audience going to be interested in the sport and it's almost there's almost an implication that if you know you're not interested in in that sport then why would you go and see a film about it but then the films that cross over manage to sort of break that that boundary and I think Senna's a really great example of that because I think yeah it's a big sport don't get me wrong but like a figure like Ali could be watched if you're not a boxing fan and something like Senna I think just just it positions the star at the center but then because he's in his own way as into as interesting intellectually and emotionally as Muhammad Ali is and then I think what that what that film does that that when we were kings doesn't and alludes to what you were just talking about about time trial is that it does put you in the car and give you that danger and and, and as you'll hear on the interview we sort of discussed that idea of the onboard shots in Senna 
and the, the the poor quality that they are actually and watching them in the cinema actually adds to the sort of violence of that experience of being in a formula one car and just how good senna was at, at controlling them yeah, really you absolutely know? yeah there's a kind of mastery of the the way you're told that stuff which kind of makes you really appreciate what you're seeing and you know in a way that you don't always get in a live event because you you know that you're just trying to capture things as it's happening and i think that speaks again to like norman mailer writing the fight or david foster wallace is writing on tennis and and it happens with serge denis in the um the McEnroe film that there's these access points of 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 seeing what you just think is a is sport in a completely different light and that's what a lot of these films do really really beautifully i think Edson has for the first time in his career the, the car able to be world champion and uh, he doesn't want to let uh, his chance I mean, going away. That's normal, and uh, he's going to what push on. What about you? What about you? Uh, it's a little bit different. <laughs> little bit, I don't, so you're going to no. let it go? I have a little bit uh, more pressure than... Uh, I mean, you put me more pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could see smiles, but at the same time, some slightly strange body language as they realised just where they were and what was going to unfold. Alan, who obviously felt he was well nested down at McLaren, and the young pretender coming in and clearly threatening that position. Both had great intellects and both were very good racing drivers. Beating each other became far more challenging than beating the rest of the field. I suddenly realized that I was no longer driving it conscious and I was in a different dimension for me. The circuit for me was a tunnel which I was just going, going, going and I realized I was well beyond my conscious understanding. Ayrton was multiple seconds into the lead, had the race in hand with only a handful of laps to go. And he received a radio message that said, you are so far in the lead, slow down. Ayrton Senna has hit the wall. Ayrton Senna is out of his car and out of this race. Goes out of the lead of the Monaco Gold. Absolutely incredible. He never wanted to beat me. He wanted to humiliate me. He wanted to, to show the people that he was much stronger, much better. And that was his weakness. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting... On, on in terms of that crossover element as well, when I when I put this out on Twitter, I mean the one film that, that a couple of people mentioned, Mark Corduroy on on, uh, on Twitter sort of mentioned Hoop Dreams as being the film that people go back to, and it's interesting how that has become that. You know, it's and again, there's that question of whether it's whether it's TV or whether it's film, but it it has acquired this sort of cinematic mythology around it, and I think it, it you know it definitely feeds into the these. Um, the, these 
uh, streaming documentaries, particularly Last Chance You. I don't know if you've seen any, any of these, which are about American football, you know, albeit a different sport. But I think the interesting thing is what they're doing is they're showing you that other side of, of the kids who don't make it. Because in sport, you know, it's it's about lauding the star and saying, you know, here's the person who is the person to be worshipped because they've become the superstar. And this is the, the, the other side of that and puts it very squarely into a a socio-political context and and it's and it's a re- you know it's a long watch but it very observational but but yeah and you know a seminal piece of work i think in this in this genre i'm off to central and the congress expressway a park over there where some pretty talented young men earl smith works downtown as an insurance executive on weekends, he's an unofficial talent scout for several area high schools. This is what you call beating the bushes. This is the job of most of your freshman coaches and guys like me who, who played a little bit of the game, who loves trying to help young people on the road to success. Today, Earl spots Arthur Agee, who just graduated from grammar school. He's got the quickest first step. I will bet you a steak dinner in four years you'll be hearing from him. I don't even know anything about him. Several days later, Earl takes Arthur and his family on a recruiting visit to the high school where NBA star Isaiah Thomas played. The visit will give St. Joseph's coaches a chance to see Arthur perform. Your role today, Arthur, is to impress the coaches, try not to be too fancy, to take the open shot, when you have it, play good defense and make good passes. The rest of it just play natural, you know. I'm hoping I'm going to go to St. Joe and play, but first I got to, I got, I got, I got to get my books straight and hopefully come out and, and um, impress the coaches. Is it kind of scary? Yes, it is. Hoop Dreams is a film, you know, I think you could break it up and do it, but it's but it's what it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same. There's something about the the effect of time on your understanding of what what, what's at stake and how and how kind of time and the the body, particularly the black male body is is kind of commodified. And you feel you feel what's at stake through the time, like through just the return and the small increments and the small steps and the amount of small steps that are kind of cumulative in terms of what these young men have to go through in order to get to the first rung, you know? And I think that's what's amazing about that film is that it it reminds that, you know, when you're watching When We Were Kings, that's someone who's gone through every stage of of, to get to that point. And this is the very first stage. And even even before you get to the first stage, there's a pre-stage which is exhausting and both physically and mentally, economically, 
on the people trying to get to the first rung to get the potential to do the thing you know and it it really pulls it pulls it back behind what we see when we watch live sport you know in america it's 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 but even in america it's college college basketball is huge tv you know so it, it's part of the culture and this is pre that this is people trying to get to that stage before they get to the nba and i think that you know you, you want to talk about kind of time and delurs later on you know and i think that hoop dreams does a lot of that you know it really focuses on the time um, and that investment of time in a way that it's not really about the the actual stages it's about about the process and the toll and the the sheer chance like all of that time could be for nothing as it, as it is that's chilling to to learn in one sitting in a way that i don't think it is if you if you check in every thursday to see how the guys are doing yeah no i i think definitely the the, the streaming examples of that the the last chance you have taken the essence of that and turned it into again a kind of very theatrical commercialized entity and amplified it in a way that doesn't have any of the subtlety of hoop dreams even though it's still compelling watching without without a shadow of a doubt so when i said i i I, uh, I wanted to to bring this cycling doc time trial onto the onto the podcast and with the interview I mean, again, it was it was interesting to me because I, I I half felt that I would have to convince you that this would be you know a good one to do for the podcast, but because like I say, I don't I don't see you as somebody who'd be that interested in sort of the four hour ESPN Lance Armstrong doc. But I think you know having having watched it now, and we'll get into the interview in, ju- in just a sec. It definitely sort of touches upon this idea of the the very sort of how close can a, a cinematic representation and one that that is deliberately trying to be immersive, bring you into the experience of watching, and and, and I think it it does as good as as any film I think I can think of of approaching that does does time trial. Yeah, I think as well. It's what helps it, which we'll kind of talk about after the interview a bit more. But it helps in terms of the character at the heart of it, who is a fascinating character in a way that I think one of the things I did want to pull out is something that. Finley sort of says about kind of Lance Armstrong, which is really interesting. But Lance Armstrong doesn't interest me as a person, and I don't know. I didn't know who David Miller was, but within the first meetings in that film, I'm like, oh, this is a character. So, which is the you know, like there's something interesting about this person that is going to lead me into the film. And then, yeah, the way they tell his story, I think, is yeah, just so immersive. But because of because I'm interested in him, I'm in the you know, I'm in the car with Senna, I'm in the ring with Ali. Yep. And I mean, I'm on the bike with David yeah. in a way that really, really works. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of these things work as films because they know that there's there's a currency in the person as a vessel for for telling that story. You know, I think any sport could work in that sense if you had the right person, you know, and you, you, you approach the form through that person. So I think cycling as a, you know, a lot of this stuff is always you don't realize it would make a good subject for a sports doc until you see a good sports doc about that subject. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is, sounds a bit weird, but yeah. Um, as soon as it started, I was like, oh yeah, I, I get this. You know, I get I, I get this thing and it's yeah. it was great. Yeah, I think it's a really, really great film. That's great. So um, let's get into that now. This is myself talking with the director of Time Trial, Finley Pretzel. We are seeing the arrival now of David Miller. He has set the best times at the second and third checks. He must know this is going to be one heck of a time. He 
his first Tour de France. 19.03 is the winning time. Armstrong has gone through in 19.05, and the winner will certainly be David Miller of the Cofferdish team. Oh, can I see something quick? Well, you like to say hello to my sister and my friends in England who are at a party now. On an emotional day that young David Miller will long remember. Feeling good. It's a fantastic feeling. That's amazing. I really can't believe it. When I look down, it's like, I don't think it's going to hit home for a little while. Probably won't hit home until I get to the Champs-Élysées if I get there. Britain's newest cycling hope. There's no doubt we're going to see a lot more of David Miller in the future. So I'm delighted to be joined by director Finley Pretzel, who is the creator of Time Trial, the the cycling documentary about the uh, cyclist David Miller. Finley, thanks so much for for taking the time to come on the show. No, it's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Um, I first saw the film in a screening room in Soho in 2018. I think it was just sort of being sent out to critics, ready ready to be released, which seems you know, like a parallel universe uh, away now. And I was so happy that I'd seen it in the auditorium. It was definitely the place to see the film because I think that it's definitely a a different experience watching it on TV, which I did just the other night. And I want to come to the question of immersiveness, you know, a little bit later, but maybe you could just start by telling us about a little bit about the the development of the project from your perspective. No, it definitely is. uh, The whole intention was it for to screen in a, a cinema. That full immersement was so important, I think. And and I think it basically came from my my love of cycling, my passion that I've uh, kind of lived with for many years, I suppose. Since I was 12, I think I discovered uh, how to properly ride a bike and go places. And uh, it comes from that. And it comes from maybe not quite making it as a a proper cyclist like David Miller or any of the professional cyclists. And I think it always, and maybe still do, always think that I, I'll one day be a professional cyclist. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's the, even though I yeah. definitely won't be, but I think that is the thing that any amateur cyclist thinks even now, you know, they yeah. they believe that they're in a race or they're battling out in the mountains or whatever. But so I think it came from that. I realized at some point when I was around about, I don't know, 23, 24, that I wasn't going to make it big. I wasn't going to be a professional, you know? And uh, and I think it's always kind of interrogating that. And I kind of, and I remember this, I, I used to work in an insurance uh, office many moons ago. And uh, I remember this woman, I, I would, she would ask me what I did at the weekend and I'd be like, oh yeah, well, I went on my bike, you know, uh, Saturday and Sunday, and all oh, right. Oh, how how far did you go? And I was like, oh well, I kind of did a hundred miles yesterday, you know, uh, around the Scottish borders and stuff. And she'd be like, huh? What for? <laughs> and I couldn't answer. I'd be like, well, uh, training to race, and and I think it was, it's almost trying to answer that question, and I think. It's that difficulty, the the passion, the drive, the mentality, the giving everything up for this pursuit is what the film is about. Did you know David beforehand? Yeah. Well, I, I made a short film with uh, a colleague, Adrian McDowell, 
in 2007, I think it was, 2006, called Standing Star. It's about another Olympic uh, velodrome cyclist, Craig McLean. And during some events that we filmed, I noticed David and I'd known about him. I'd known about his kind of past uh, and he was the one Scottish cyclist that was riding, which was very impressive to me because there isn't many. Uh, he's the one that made it and I always looked up to him, I suppose. And he's kind of similar age to me, a bit older. And I spotted him and I was like, ah, there's something there. He's not the the champion cyclist, not the Lance Armstrong or the Chris Froome or however, whoever, but he is a big star, you know? And and I thought, yeah, I, I should try and make a film with this guy. I liked it. He had a nice, good attitude. He was quite abrupt with the media and he, he, he seemed to think a lot. He seemed to be a very well-spoken and could speak very passionately about ideas and and I kind of liked that also he uh, at one point was going to go to art college and there's lots of kind of backstory about him that I I liked and I, I said right I, I'm gonna contact him and through his sister Fran Miller who has been at the helm of Team Sky and Team Ineos the big UK cycling teams she actually handed him a copy of Standing Star and, and I said, oh, can you watch it? Maybe we can do something one day. And so in 2007, we met at this dinner that was cycling dinner that was he was a speaker at. And uh, he, there was this moment where he kind of was walking to the bathroom probably and he came back and he knelt at my table <laughs> and said, oh, you're, you're Finlay. And I said, oh, yeah, Finley Pretzel, he would say, which is my name. has <laughs> always kind of caused yeah. a bit of amusement, understandably. And he knelt at my table and said, oh, Christ, oh, I, I loved the film. I've watched it 12 times in the last week. I uh, watched it before this World Championships I just did. And, uh, and then we basically kind of hit it off and spent that kind of night just discussing possibilities, yeah. really. So It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean... The, the combination of those two things of having having a, a figure who you want to make the film around it, but then how you make the film about the sport is an interesting one. I've, just going back to what you said earlier, I think it's, I don't know whether it's it, it's something in the male psyche in terms of that trying to reconcile the fact that you never made it. I mean, for me, it was tennis. It was just like, mm. you know, I still think at 46 that my, my time is is still to come. You know, there's <laughs> exactly. some sort of weird trauma there about not not actually making it as, as a professional sports yeah. person. And you can see that that sort of drives the way that this film is, is made, I think, rather than it being sort of tribal like a, a football film might be or, or more about, you know, just great achievements. That sense of working through what the what the sort of nature of the sport is and what it means i think is fascinating way into the sports documentary genre i mean when you were thinking about how to do that aesthetically and technically what were some of the things you were sort of thinking about in terms of putting it together oh the, the sound was a massive right. thing you know and the sound and I, I can sit and watch the tour de france on television for five or six hours but I think anyone else coming to that, a, a person that's not interested in cycling would be like, oh, this is really boring. There's nothing happening, which is basically the makeup of many of these races that happen. Nothing happens for most of the day, you know? And and I think I, 
I also had this thing that I wanted to watch this. I, I watched this on television. It's very pretty. It's a aesthetically pleasing sport. It's very colourful and there's big light, wide vistas and mountainscapes and it's, uh, you know, this word epic is used constantly to discuss cycling and 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 it, it is all that. But I wanted to show that other side of it. I wanted to show that it's actually, it's isolated. You're, mm. you, there's all this stuff going on constantly, whether it's other cyclists around you, like a few centimetres away from you. The It was also about this, someone that wasn't at the front of the race, you know, someone who was, who would actually, you would barely see them in the race unless they were doing a, a time trial, which David was a specialist at, or he had made a breakaway. He would never be in the sprints for the finish line or, you know, with the, the big stars of that. There's only a few of them and there's only a few of the winners that can win the Tour de France. So you hear about them constantly. You don't hear about these uh, for want of a better word, back markers, you know. I wanted to see what it was like at the back or in the bunch and and ex- experience that, you know, and, mm. and take a person into that. And that is it, really. That is where the whole idea came from. That's what excited David as well. He yeah. got on board with that idea and and he was he was adamant that it had to be something that showed an experience, you know? It's quite difficult to know how to sort of structure a film, I would imagine, in terms of what are you actually focusing on in terms of the structure of the race itself? Because obviously it's, it's like I say, one day is four or five hours and then with the tour it's three weeks. And that does lend itself to TV rather than cinema. So then, as you've done really well, I think, it's that, that sense of the aesthetic of the race is really key where you've got the colour, you've got the movements... You know, you've got the geometry of the sport and the bodies moving together, and it's like you can make analogies like the it's a snake weaving through the the, mm. the mountains, and the, the peloton is like the head or something like that. But mm. yeah, I mean, was there a lot of you know your own kind of ideas in terms of how you wanted to get just so up, up close and personal? Because you're you know you're using slow mo, then you're using different kinds of camera speeds and. You know, I would imagine you're doing you're doing quite a lot in terms of the marrying of the sound in different ways because you've got those lovely moments where it looks like the the cyclist is sort of sped up sped up, but the the sound is actually in real time. So it's it's fascinating how that that, that aesthetically comes together. I think we we tested and tested lots of different techniques and shooting it in certain ways at, at the Tour de France, at the Tour of Italy. I mean, we, we basically spent the year before we, we made the film uh, or shot the film, we we spent yeah weeks shooting with a motorbike with a certain shutter speed and statically at the side of the road, in the cars, in the hotel rooms, all the rest of it. We, it was like we did a, a run through before the, the final year of uh, David's racing. And, and I think... Through all of that, you would look at it and there'd be so many times you'd just be sitting looking at it going, yep, that's guys riding a bike and that is it, you know? (laughs) It's like trying to find a way to transfer that speed or the the movement and just make it simply look different from television. 
I think that was such a a key thing and this this speed element and I still don't think you find that even with HD and they're kind of doing a bit of onboard cameras these days and they, they still don't transfer the speed it's more about the sport and who's winning and and of course that's what people want to watch but I wanted to take it away from that and and make it this special universe that I invite people into yeah it's real it's definitely real and there's but it's a it's another world you know you're hearing David's thoughts you're hearing his what his breathing you're hearing other people chat it's a it's a construction of reality of course but but I that's that was so deliberate it's not that there's anything not truthful in there it's very truthful and David would admit that but there's moments that you might think oh did that actually that didn't happen you know but it, it's very yeah metaphorical I suppose in some ways Breakaways used to be my favourite thing. I don't know whether it's I physically can't or I psychologically can't. I used to just love hurting myself. I can get in them still, but it's not done with the same commitment and joy. I used to just enjoy not only hurting myself, but hurting everybody else. I think the team just rode off. Because breakaways are hard. I mean, on TV, they always look kind of pretty gentle, but when you're out there, it's... You're doing a time trial, and a long one, three, four hours long. Something amazing about being on the front on your own, you get this energy. It's like you have the whole city to yourself. To talk about other films, um, which was a huge kind of inspiration, three films. One was uh, Zidane, a 21st century portrait. Yeah, by, yeah, I thought that might have been one that, that, that you've yeah. seen or, or that uh, definitely yeah, yeah. influenced you. And, and that's like, I... I am not interested in football, but that just in the cinema with the the soundtrack, the the sound design, and oh, I was like, oh Christ, this is suddenly I'm on that pitch, I'm in the the game all of a sudden, you know, and Zidane's this very enigmatic figure, and David's very different from Zidane, but it's and we couldn't have made an enigmatic film about David. I think that would have been not truthful but that was a seed in a way of going oh you can do this another one is Senna of course which I think it's a really fascinating film and this pure voiceover and you're never seeing all these sit-down interviews which I think is 
is a really great way to do uh, make a film, you know. And uh, the third one is a film by Jürgen Leth, uh, A Sunday in Hell. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think many of his films, I think I, I really enjoy is because he's not just a just in inverted commas a sports filmmaker. He's a very experimental filmmaker. Lars von Trier thinks he's the best filmmaker out there and inspired him to make films and uh, <laughs> so he's made some really strange films about tennis and lots of films about cycling but I think what I liked about all these films is they transcended the sport they they became something else you know and I think that's always what my intention was was to transcend the sport take somebody who knows nothing or not even interested in sport, knows nothing about cycling, goes in and goes off. Wow, I didn't mm. know any of this happened, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because the that sense of the movement of cycling, hmm. again, there's a sort of correlation between the way that the that movement is, is sort of key and action is key to cinema. Not in action in the action film sense, but that idea of you are you are sort of moving through the world in and and time can be shifted in different in different ways and i think what's great is yes there are the the, the speed parts and the the sound and the breathing is sort of key and draws you into that that sort of experience of almost kind of like a you know a magic carpet and and there is a sort of correlation to center i mean i, mem- I remember when i i saw that at the cinema and you've got the onboard shots in the car, they're shot on really old-fashioned cameras, you know, yeah. compared to today. Like when you watch it now on TV, the cameras are so high def uh, and high, there's no yeah. shaking and stuff. No. Whereas in the car and in Senna, yeah, it's it's kind of going out of, out of picture and breaking up all of the time. You get that sense of the of the you know the the, the actual power that's going through the the driving experience, and I think it's it's analogous as well to your film when. You've got the difference between the speed parts of the of the film, but then also the climbing parts and that the mental and physical exertion and just you know the sort of <laughs> the times when David's sort of swearing and just sort of you know he's absolutely at the limit of his physical capabilities. And I think that watching some of the other cycling docs that I have, you know, it's easy for cyclists to sort of talk about that. I was at the limit of my. And that's why the you know the doping element comes into it a bit, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But that sense of you know just being on the limit of what is physically possible for humanity is probably you know it's as close as I've seen a, a film kind of get to that in, in terms of immersive representation. Yeah, the, all of those things you say, and I, I really I remember people when we were showing kind of rough cuts of the film, one or two people would say, "Oh God, I don't know." This scene, the hill climb scene where David's following it's Bradley Wiggins going up this kind of sure. ridiculously steep 30% climb. I remember standing on that climb. It's like you could, it's kind of hard to stand up on it. You know, you're, you're constantly almost falling over. It's so steep. And so he's like weaving up this climb and it's on this kind of very glitchy, you know, lipstick camera that we had. And and you and the crowds there and people will be like, oh God, I feel a bit sick watching that. Mm. And I'm like, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm yeah. I was so delighted about that because I was, of course, you're concerned, you're watching everything, you're, I, I can understand where they're coming from, but I'm like, perfect. That's 
this feeling of exhaustion at the end of the film is like exactly what the, the role of the film for me was. I, I, I like this idea. And, and I think going back to those glitchy cameras, as I say, technology over those 10 years of the kind of gestation of the film and making the film and all the rest of it, those little tiny cameras, now, yeah, they've got the big 4K pristine ones, which they're good, they're fine, they, they, you get a nice crisp image. But these glitches that these tiny cameras were, they, at first they had a wire to a battery and they were just, I don't even know if it was like 1080p, whatever, <laughs> right. but it was yeah. like so bad and yeah. so digital and it would constantly glitch all the time and you'd get big, you know, ah, beautiful, it's perfect. It, it, works a treat you know especially as you say to get across that feeling of this chaos and shaking and speed and what they're kind of going through it's and as we this company gave us a big load of these little cameras and they i was always a bit like ah oh, they don't look as good as those old <laughs> glitchy nasty looking cameras you know like almost vhs then as in the rain you get these great images where there's like a drop of drops of water on the lens that are just flickering and like making the image look like a kind of soup or an oil slick and it's like oh great <laughs> it just it's so rich that for me is was all about that transferring of the yeah this image and I, I remember this kind of technique we would use on this like the the kind of shutter speed it would be uh, the the grip that we had was this Paris-based technician, brilliant guy. And he would always question us, are you sure, are you sure you're happy? Every breakfast time after we'd reviewed the footage in the evening and come down, he'd be like, oh, so the footage, uh, did you? And I'm like, it's brilliant, John, amazing. <laughs> Even though some of it wasn't, you know, some of, a lot of it wasn't, a lot of it was unusable. And that's the risk in a way that we would take. Some of it, you just, Oh, you can't watch it. It's just, it's too. But sometimes when it works, like in the opening time trial shot, it's like, oh, that's it. There's a great moment in that first where you you're alongside for a certain period of time, and and when you're watching it, you you realise you're not going anywhere because you're aligned with David sideways on. Mm. So kind of like because you're aligned with him, it feels like you're not moving, but you get, but that kind of almost enhances the level of of speed that you're experiencing, which is a really weird counterintuitive yeah. thing. I mean, yeah, is that yeah. something that you sort of discovered where actually with the use of the, the equipment, there were sort of impressions of of speed or of experience that were coming out and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't sort of realize that was going to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think in that, so this time trail happened at the end of a week of shooting, talking about time and the film jumps all over with time it doesn't it's, there's no correlation really uh all i wanted it to be is one or this idea of one race whether that's a three-week race two-day race a one-day race it didn't matter i just wanted it to be a race you know so if people ever question where that race was or when that happened i'm yeah i i, I avoid those questions but i think after this week of shooting the year before we shot the same race on a different motorbike, different equipment, and it was raining the whole time. So it was like, 
really difficult to shoot and but it had this kind of extra thing that was there the rain gave it something else suddenly the next year it's beautiful sun like uncannily warm the whole time this race happens in the spring and we're like all right so we'd be looking at the footage every night and going oh, okay it's it's beautiful it's good but it's it's missing something then we hit that time trial and it's like oh wow when we got back me David, Martin, a couple of others from the crew all watched this scene and were like, ah, that's the film in a way, you know, that is it. We've, this is opening of the film. I remember when I was 15 and I got my first road bike. There used to be this road that I go up and down, up and down, because there was one corner on it that I just couldn't get through without braking. I decided that I had to do it. I had to get through that corner without braking. And every time I came down it, I had to make sure I went around that corner at 50 kilometers an hour, not below. Guys kept practicing and practicing. Eventually I did it. it. Took me two weeks. And then I never braked again for it, ever. Those lines and those, like, it's so impressionistic and it's it's like a kind of painting, I think. It's so... I, I, I love that. <laughs> I could watch that for... Still, to this day, I could probably watch that for a long time. I think it's... I, I almost wanted it to be in real time in the film. And yeah, yeah. It got <laughs> eventually kind of like, yeah, cut no, down. Well, I, don't, I don't need to, I, I, you know, this is just for me. I'm just going to watch this for an hour and a half. And yeah, you've got, remember, yeah, exactly. there's <laughs> an audience out Beautiful. there, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. With that, with that in mind, did you, I mean, again, you were sort of talking a bit there about your development of the relationship with, with David. And, you know, obviously as a documentarian, you've got to make the, the call as to how much of the talking heads uh, are in there. And obviously you use voiceover. And then there's even these the sort of, the, they're almost sort of dream sequences you have with mm. David. But I, I just yeah. wondered whether you ever were worried or you, you thought to yourself, I have to shoot and use David in a specific way because he's not, as you say, Bradley Wiggins or Lance Armstrong in terms of name recognition anyway. And also he's kind of a introspective kind of guy, it seems to me. I think I was always, yeah, it, it, it felt like quite a, a very odd relationship that you have with these characters sometimes that are last so long, you know, over so many years. And always to give credit to David, he would always be available and or within reason. And he would always go with ideas, you know, like, you know, these dreams sequences he he, he he always went with it. and there's this kind of dancing scene which that that scene came from a long long time ago right at the start i really like like this idea of him 
dancing on his own, kind of out of control. I, I like, I really loved that idea. And that was, pro that was in fact the last thing we shot, funnily enough, even though it was one of the first things we saw, thought, I thought about. Yeah, it, it, it's a, I always saw it as no talking heads, really. I yeah. kind of didn't want this, but we would always shoot as if, as in the film, you see these scenes with David in this darkened room. But I was going to use that as, you know, so I'd have the option for just audio or just in uh, vision. But actually, what I, I, because of David's past, he had this idea that he, this confessional booth, that was the idea of those kind of darkened scenes where you don't see a kitchen in the background or, the you know, any anything personal to him or because of this and the intimacy that created was yeah beautiful I thought actually and it kind of re made me rethink of actually it's seeing the whites of his eyes and seeing him looking and we framed it in a certain way as well so it was very in your face in a way yeah 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 and it's like he's talking to you and I don't know if that answers your question. Well, honest, I mean, but, yeah. it, it, it's interesting just watching it, and then you know, as somebody sort of, you know, like myself, sort of analyzes films, what that, what the moments must have been like. I mean, the two sort of key emotional moments, mm. or you know, emotional payoffs are when you're he's getting angry about being asked about doping again. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and and it's funny because it's kind of like where does that. That anger. I mean, obviously, it's the frustration that that cycling and and whoever has been caught for for doping is going to be answering for that forever. Yeah. And and it's how you deal with that. But then also when he finds out he's he, you know that's it, he's going to be dropped by the team. And he and in a way, in in some of the scenes in the race, you get that sense that he knows it's over. He's he's kind of pushing the pedals down, and it's not happening anymore. And yeah, I mean, it's. It, I suppose as a documentarian, it, you want to get into the cracks of those moments as much as you can, but then you've got to not alienate your subject. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but he. I think that with him, he he's like He's an incredibly intelligent man, absolutely, and he would always, when he spoke, kind of be very aware of what he was saying, and he and he would analyze what he was saying. Uh, almost immediately after he said something instead of just letting himself roll with it and it all coming out he would always be checking himself which because of that that he's, he's uh, an athlete that's interviewed constantly and talks about these things constantly and we'd built up such a level of trust over that l long period of time we would talk regularly and try and and meet regularly and you, you know i i would certainly know points maybe that that you would have to pick up on to elicit a reaction i suppose and sure. and and because of that kind of media training if you like he would give those the a certain answer and and i would always want to try and get beyond that answer you know and mm. try and get yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I mean, thinking about one of those interviews, we I, I remember this boiling hot time in July. It was the year after he, he finished racing. And I wanted to go back and do various kind of pick-up scenes like the the dream sequences. And we, we would go to his house, me, 
uh, Martin, the cinematographer and sound guy. And we would, it, it was just him in his house, his wife and kids were away for the week and it would just be him. And we would go in, we had five days to shoot stuff, <laughs> let's call it. He knew what we were going to shoot, but we would go in and be like, right. Uh, and he would be like, he's a busy guy. He's got stuff to do. He's He, he operates in kind of black and white, whereas filmmaking is very grey, <laughs> all of it, you know, especially documentary filmmaking. So we'd go to his house and, I mean, we wouldn't shoot anything, you know. We would have an idea to shoot something at some point, but it wouldn't. If I felt it wasn't the right time, we just wouldn't do anything. So he'd be sat in his kitchen just... Uh... <laughs> and he would yeah. just be... I cringe at the thought of it because it's so... It's happening. It's not like we're we're big pals just chatting. Well, I mean, we were. We chatted. But it was a bit awkward because he was like, well, what are we doing? I'm here. Yeah. And we're not filming anything. And uh... But for me, that's such a big part of that process of being with the character and only shooting when there's something to shoot rather than just shooting for the yeah. sake of it. And, you know, sometimes you have to do that, you know, and sit and have an interview for sure. the, the sake of it, you know. But some of the, the, the nice elements as well, and I don't know whether you sort of, this came out during the shooting and, or, and it became almost a kind of device where the interactions he has with the team and the other riders in the peloton and, and it's amazing how you sort of got the sound out of that i mean i don't know how that how, how that was done sort of having the conversations within the peloton because it's fascinating to listen to that where they're in the middle of the sport and then he's on the radio as well and talking to the team they've all got very dry sweary sense of humor i, I think it's the the combination of the camaraderie and the fact that they're all slogging you know mile after mile together and it, it does provide some comic asides I think which really sort of lightens the, some of the other elements of the film. Yeah yeah no totally I, as I say I used to race and I kind of understand these moments but the, the moment which completely surprised me I've always known about their kind of radio interactions and stuff and honestly you sat in the car and a rider speaks says something through the radio you cannot <laughs> understand a word they're saying Yeah, nothing yeah. I'm like I, I remember that one time, or several times, they would repeat it over and over again. I'd be like, no, I can't hear anything. And they would get, oh, yeah, he wants a, a, a rain jacket. <laughs> and then I think what the moment that surprised me most was these guys, they're professional cyclists. They're paid to do this job, let's call it. Uh, I like this idea that it was just a job as well, and they were kind of almost going through the motions, you know, what's the weather like? And I love that. The, those those two moments is where they're just like talking about the weather and oh yeah oh, I was lucky I wasn't at the Giro last year oh that was a nightmare and all of that stuff it's so like banal and so like fascinating and also the other time where they're in this big group of cyclists it's towards the start of the film they're all coming up the road and a couple of riders break away off the front of the group and everyone's groaning yes. and oh, shouting yes. at them. So and, and where you're like, are you going? <laughs> no, you're like, well, they're all out to try and win the race. Yeah, That's yeah, surely yeah. the objective. And I think that that was just like, oh. I I'm sure it, someone shouts from the back, is, is his contract up or something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. They, they had all of this, like, uh, it's Mark Cavendish was 
particularly moaning because it was a I think a really hilly stage that day and he was just like oh and swearing and yeah they're all yeah it that, that was fascinating really it kind of blew my mind that that scene where it is absolutely pissing it down it's freezing and somebody's nicked his gloves and they can't oh, yeah. find his gloves and oh, then man. and then he says oh don't the coach says to the car you know don't worry it's 15 degrees on the coast and he's like thank fuck for that i know it's hilarious it, it, the, the the language is atrocious that's why Annoyingly, and I, I think it was the, it's a not good decision, but the uh, the ratings BBFC gave it a um, an eighteen rating. Oh, did you film, me? Which, no, which is it is a bit. It's like, come on, any fifteen year old watching that film, they'll understand what's going on. You know, <laughs> the the reason why he's swearing so much is because it's uh, he's going through a tough time. It's not like a you know, uh, it's a bit, yeah, a bit strange. But anyway, you can't change that. But, but yeah, what, one other thing that I always uh, wanted to kind of capture, and you, you kind of touched on it the last time, and all these beautiful big images of cycling, the mountains, all the rest of it, was this idea of claustrophobia as well. And I think that goes throughout the film. It's kind of uncomfortable. And I wanted that uncomfortableness to be there. And, I, and to express the feeling of racing or what they do they're you know they it looks very glamorous on on paper in the magazines on television but it's not and i'm not saying we should feel sorry for them or you know they're they have a tough time it's just that they're in a bubble they don't look at the mountainscapes and the you know they don't get any time to look around each other or enjoy the food they just they're there to do this job and these races, other than the big races that we all, everyone knows about, these are the races that make them, prepare them for these big races. So, and they are just, to some of them, just training, preparing for these races. So I found that, I, I really wanted to have that. Rather than having big vistas of the mountains, it's like you can watch the race every year on tv for that you know yeah i mean i, th I think it's one of the the key things that we're talking about in in this episode really in terms of the way that television covers sport and the way that cinema covers sport what are the nuances of those differences and it's almost like boil it down it's almost like tv is the, is the prose and cinema is the poetry when it comes to the and it, and it yeah. sounds as well the the way that you were coming into this film was very much appeals to me in in terms of the way that i view sport which is it is getting beyond the score and mm. who's winning and who's losing. Yeah. What is the essence of, of the experience of doing it, particularly in terms of those those who are at the top of that game and how does that relate to everyone else who who loves doing that sport or is attached to that sport in, in some way? And just, just as a final question, I just wondered where you think cycling is now in terms of in terms of it being a, a sport that does have that cinematic appeal in terms of its epicness and its spectacle, but yet is, you know, still beset by a, a, a lot of the, the the problems that have emerged, obviously, and, you know, the, the history of sort of doping in inverted commas in cycling is it's not, not only 20 or 30 years old. It's, you know, performance-enhancing substances have been used throughout, you know. Oh, yeah, but it's, absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting to sort of see where where cycling is as a sort of object of sort of cinematic representation in, in relation to that, because there's so many sort of Lance documentaries, there's sort of four of them, isn't, isn't there? And it's all about that that story. Yeah, the recent Lance, when I watched it the other day, I kind of, uh, 
I quite liked it. It's yeah. uh, you know the ESPN uh, one, the four hour yeah, one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I don't know if a, a non-cyclist would necessarily enjoy watching it. And he doesn't come out like, oh right, you know, he's 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 a good guy. He comes out looking exactly the same as he ever was. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because he, he gets a big soapbox, but then he just reveals the, the absolute sort of self-centeredness of his, <laughs> yeah. of his personality, just no. even though it's his own soapbox in many ways. Yeah, yeah. But he still won seven Tours de France, you know? And that is a massive feat. Doping or no doping, he was a phenomenon. And you can't... not. Uh, not that I'm a fan or I'm neither a fan or not of his I, I kind of he's just part of it and uh, I didn't like the way he behaved towards his fellow human beings but he, that is what it took his attitude and the way he still is is what it takes to, to be the best you know <laughs> like he's the epitome of this uh, this uh, an athlete in a way and and where is the sport? I think it's like, I think, I I want to believe, I suppose, that it's uh, it's as clean and as, uh, yeah, as clean as it's ever been. And I think there'll always be people trying to uh, make gains here and there with illegally, but, and sometimes legally, uh, within the realms of legality, anyway, uh, as we've heard recently. And, but it's there's not those mass like when you watch that Lance film and you know you remember that era, those like unfathomable efforts, the explosiveness, the 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 speed they were going up these climbs, the speed, the average speeds of races. I'm sure has come down. Yeah, no, it definitely has. Yeah, and I think that those those superhuman freakish. Moments. David, I remember telling me about how when he was in a Tour de France once, and it was when Floyd Landis won. Yeah. Uh, who Lance's kind of uh, lieutenant. Nemesis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then became Nemesis, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, David just said it was phenomenal. It, he shot out of the peloton like nothing on earth and disappeared. And it was like everyone looked at each other and were like, yeah, definitely Something, <laughs> something going, going on, on there, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and I think that with them all and this is so what I got from David and all the other riders that you'd be around is a total fatigue talking about doping and that in you know how everything's tarnished in their sport you know yeah. by doping it's only about that that's what yeah. they hear and and I think that is uh, that's a kind of shame, you know, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's because cycling is just not as uh, doesn't have as much money in it than, say, football, tennis, and all that, or whether it's just such a difficult sport that you know it's people need something extra, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. or are looking for something extra. I don't know, but I, I would say it's as clean as it as it can be, and yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, I like to. Kind of believe that, but yeah. but I, in some ways, and this is like a kind of dirty secret in a way. I kind of liked 
or it gave cycling something else, all that kind of doping back in the 90s, you know. Oh, it was it definitely it big, like, big news, wasn't it? That's yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. But it's a shame that it was the only news a lot of the yeah, time, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, Finley, are you working on anything right now? Are you managing to navigate the, the lockdowns <sighs> or is it is it all just, you know, making the best of what we can at the moment? Yeah, it is a bit. It's a bit, um, yeah, it's a bit tricky to believe that you can make films again yeah. <laughs> in a way. And I think that's the, yeah, I was... I had I started a few things, but uh, most recently in kind of February, shot a really nice, um, well, a kind of teaser or a trailer to start beginning to raise money for a, for another film in Colombia, actually. Wow! And uh, oh, it's 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 beautiful, actually. I, I was really super happy with it. It's a film I've kind of wanted to make. It's been in the back of my mind for quite some time, and then finally you're there doing it and we really captured something that just fantastic and then come back and <laughs> yeah all of that you know obviously the virus was there and and it's kind of locked everything down so it's it's really hard to imagine when any of us are going to get back to Colombia to make the film Who well knows? I wish you luck with that and um, time trial is on the BBC iPlayer so I highly recommend that you go and uh, you go and watch it And thanks so much once again for coming on The Cinematologist. I really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. There's always a few that want to go for their own reasons. You're supposed to go with me. It's not starting. He's got his family here, so hats off to him. The peloton as a whole doesn't want the racing to start immediately. If it does, it makes the race harder. Team leaders trying to intimidate everybody. No change back here, Charlie. There's some serious blocking going on. Charlie Paolini's just launched behind as well, but we're still blocking the road. Okay, so yeah, thanks very much to Finley for coming on, and two years after the fact, still had you know so much to say about the film, and clearly into the project i mean obviously he made the film so he's into the project but do you know what i mean in terms of the interest in the in the subject area and how it fits to other sports documentaries he was very good on that i thought what do you make of of him and, and the film i thought it was a great interview yeah really really enjoyable interview um and i thought he was great yeah smart uh incisive uh insightful and yeah you can see that the, that's the film that that person would make um in a way you know there's a real really nice kind of relationship there i think between the film and, and and him yeah i really i really loved the film the first thing that really struck me was the music 
and reminded me how important the music is to you know and I, I love I love Dan Deacon um, and his score I think is is absolutely fantastic and then obviously I love the Mogwai score for Zidane and I watched um, this and then I watched the McEnroe and then the first thing in the McEnroe film is this great Sonic Youth track and I'm just like you know like just again just it's really really important to know how to get this these visuals across and how to cut this stuff tempo and pace and tone like and I just thought I just thought it was a really sympathetic score in terms of conveying the kind of physicality of the peloton and the emotions of of this human being doing these things I just found him really fascinating as a character and you know I think it's important to see these sports people as characters I think that there is in all of these people maybe not Senna to the same degree but certainly with Ali as we were talking about earlier and 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 McEnroe particularly there's there is a performance or a kind of performativity you know and I think that what's interesting about the film is that David Miller has that but then it's kind of it's completely shaken by what he does and what he has to then come back from and it's hard to it's hard to to do what he did before in the same way because of what people consider him as you know and how how they view that person that he was at the time and I think that's a really interesting aspect is him wrestling with who he was and how he did things and and the fact that he maybe can't physically but also people's perception of him is is very different and that was yeah was really really great I think that the Zidane aspect is really interesting because you're looking at a character and there's there is a an assumption because of how you watch stuff that this that there's going to be a, a happy ending you know but it's always in tension with the reality of of knowing how these things work and those things playing together is is handled really really well you kind of root for him because he's he's obviously repented and trying to try to rebuild his life but you're also watching someone test their physical capabilities and whether they can actually physically do this thing, which is just kind of thrilling to watch, but also very sad. And I liked, I mean, I really liked the way he was talking about making the technology work for the experience in the story. It is a really immersive film. And I think that, that the combination of way things were, were shot and what they could do in terms of how they could shoot it, I think is really is really key to that in a way that I think as well the lack of that in the Senna film and the fact that it's kind of completely compiled from archives patched together from different sources is what makes that film work as well you know like there's a that's that that felt really really great but what was amazing was hearing him talk about Lance Armstrong you know I think that particularly in the 2020 you're again there's not that I expect it of him but just there's a kind of there's an automatic expectation of how people are going to talk about certain subjects and he doesn't you know, he talks about this person in really complicated ways and sort of wants to acknowledge that, that which kind of goes back to the David Miller talks about the whole way through, which is how long am I going to have to talk about this thing? And, you know, the fact that I talk about it so much makes it unreal, uh, which is an amazing kind of insight into having to kind of constantly tell people what they know that you've done, <laughs> um, in, which is very different to Lance Armstrong, but also kind of just that he doesn't want to cancel him. And he doesn't want to remove everything, everything from and how how that's the film that he's made, you know, which is like really getting into the complicated, the problematic of it and not saying it's it's a simple binary of this person's bad. Kind of cancel them from you can't you can't remove that person from that that history. But you can hear in the, in the interview him kind of still wrestling with how he feels about this figure at the top of a sport that he clearly loves. And I think it was, that was just really, really, yeah. I've just, I really loved that because I was like, it's so rare still to hear people, so rare currently to hear people want to get into the mess of things and not just say, this is bad. 
you know like let's let's consign it and yeah it was refreshing and again it's it's i think it's in his film you know i think that he's he, it's not a simple it's not simple for david miller it wasn't simple and what should happen to people who you know transgress and cheat and and kind of you know commit commit sins within the the kind of the ethics of a sport you know um what is serving time and what's interesting about the film is that if it would have been a live ban he never would have known that he couldn't do it <laughs> you know and that that what what it cost him was the peak of his of his abilities to be able to do that thing you know physically which i think is really really interesting and the film does really really well yeah i think it's really interesting because i've heard cyclists before def- not defend Lance Armstrong because i don't think finley's doing that but what he's doing is he's acknowledging that it's more complicated than this is the cheat, here's the bad guy, and everything's his fault. And and I think the way that the, the, that that's intellectualized for a lot of these cyclists is that everyone's doing it. <laughs> and if you watch the four-hour ESPN documentary, it honestly more or less says everyone's doing it. And if you if you don't do it, then you may as well go home or go get a go get a job because you, you've got no chance. And so it becomes an internal moral debate as to you know that there's a moral a moral problem with what is happening here but yet the gray areas of that are manifold really manifest and it just becomes a sense of you know everybody is having to reconcile the fact of what it is versus what the ideal should be and the the gap between those two two things in all walks of life is is large but obviously when it's played out in a big sport that's that's worth a load of money it becomes very tricky i think and that again that that's not that's not from my position but it's just just like it, it's very it's very one note to be able to, to to sort of say yeah that that guy did that he's evil take away all of all of his titles deny the fact that he is a superhuman athlete because he was on drugs so he can't be superhuman because it was the drugs that was superhuman you know what i mean it's like all it's much more complicated than that i think and it's trying to get around that and it's a difficult i mean on a forum like our podcast i think it's some it, it, it it's possible to talk about it in that way but you can't just you couldn't just wade out onto the bbc and and because you just wouldn't have the you wouldn't have the space to be able to discuss things in that level yeah. of nuance yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> always reminds me of the there's a great big bill hicks bit where he sort of says like you know about um i think it's baseball um you know just every make doping legal and then because everyone's doing it anyway um and then a great bit about what would what would happen to the sport you know but i think what what it's always struck me as in this is an example of you know is that sport is a space for ideals you know in terms of fans and spectators you know that you're watching sport because it it has the potential to be the ideal that you that is not possible for you or for in in everyday life you know it is so there is a kind of romanticism that you you know that your your team your person will will do the thing that will show you what's possible by people that is is unattainable on a kind of regular regular basis and when that is questioned or challenged be it by doping in so cycling will be it by the behaviors of certain people outside of that sport it shakes it but the reality is if you're on the inside if you play sport and you are in a competitive world particularly where there's a lot of money involved 
then it's a it's you're just you're playing a different sport to what people are watching and that is that's difficult you know and it's fascinating that's what makes it fascinating i think you know is 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 because and i think it's interesting in terms of cinema because we're seeing it in terms of cinema art the artists we talk about this a lot you know but we're being challenged as to where do we stand and where's our own spectrum and what do we think is is an acceptable amount of reality in our fantasy of of this thing and where do we draw the line and it's not a not a straight it's not a single line you know it can't be a single line because we're all different and we all bring you know we all different opinions yeah. about it what you're getting to though is the fact that because sport has rules in terms of who wins or loses and there's no there's you know, in most sports, there's kind of no debate about that. Or if there's a debate, it's just a mistake. It either is or it isn't. It's a goal or it's not. The ball is in or it's out. You were quicker than the other person. So it kind of sets itself up as having parameters within which there is no sort of debate. And and, and again, I think it, it relates a little bit to that. What we talked about beforehand in terms of why do you become interested and what maybe is the the way that we separate art from sport in a, in a way that's kind of wrong i think in many ways but i think it's that the ideal is a relationship to what should be which is kind of in stone when it's when it's sport you know what i mean there's parameters someone is always going to win someone is going to lose right but then with with something like music for example you know it's much more of a subjective idea of what is and and, and cinema it's subjective what is good and what is not what's winning i mean you know and you can put box office statistics on it or you can have critic critical analysis but it's never objective you know in that clear way of the ball was in or it was out and i think that it's it's interesting because it growing up as somebody who was a sports person you know rather than say a music person and the things that that inspired me was the ability to to work within those parameters that were known and they're known for me who is an amateur player but they're the same parameters as they are for the the professional player and that's why i'm always more interested in moments than i am in scores and again and that's where the crossover i think is to me in terms of art and sport whereas it's like the the winner and the loser is in, is is interesting and that's the tv element and that's the thing you watch for but on any given day you know as the phrase goes someone's going to win and someone's going to lose but that's not the thing that inspires it actually becomes artistic doesn't it that the thing that inspires you whether it's the you know the maradona goal or you know the the the, the McEnroe point and the you know whatever it is that just that thing that that grabs you does there then have the correlation to to maybe music or or other art forms and it's it's just amazing how that sort of that is talked about in the McEnroe film you know more than any other film I think I can I can think of yeah yeah as and I remember watching the I remember watching the you know the 86 England the Argentina the you know because 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 all all I'm thinking when you think when you're sort of saying that that there's a winner and loser and the, the balls in or the balls out and it's like yeah but the greats and the famous ones stretch that they re, you know and that's the artist or the art and the and I art, art, art in a, not in a kind of yeah, ne- that's what I mean. not in a positive yeah, yeah. negative binary but in a in a sense of you're watching something and by all rights you shouldn't have seen what you've seen you know or what has actually transpired has shouldn't have transpired you know and you're watching something where yeah a goal has been given and a game has been won undeniable fact but also that the the manner that you know, you know that that should that's it's a false 
what's amazing about the macro one as well is you realize you know and i I, when i watched the macro which kind of go on but i was thinking i'm watching this film and i'm thinking this is why hawkeye was invented because he is stretching (laughs) to get rid of mcenroe yeah yeah yeah, yeah, because because of how he is how he's managing the time of the game how he's managing those boundaries like it's set this is this a point a point a point but he's like no there's space in there and i'm gonna i'm gonna manipulate that space i'm gonna challenge everything to the point where everything in that arena changes like they are and the same with maradona maradona's sees that opportunity as a moment to to make a step that no one else in that entire tournament would make to see if to see if he can get the advantage to see if he can get the thing which like he's said like in the game he knew this could go either way so someone's got to you know it's not going to be one on queensbury rules it's going to be one you know with a kidney punch and and that's fascinating and i remember seeing it as a kid being like the balls i didn't get angry because i was like i can't believe that he would but that but that's how he saw the game was like mm, there's a space here and it's more interesting in those moments and i think actually what the film does it, it sort of expands that even more in terms of the idea that there is the equation between what you teach and the mechanics of hitting a ball is this pattern of, you know, you hit hit the thing and you can teach that pattern and the ball will travel over there. But then, you know, the, the film is based on these that were these archive films that were made by this guy called Jill de Kammerdeck. And he recorded thousands of hours of players playing in the 70s and 80s, particularly at Roland Garros. And he was interested in the nature of movement and how he discovered that that how tennis was being taught was not actually the movement that was happening on court. It's That's exactly what you're talking about, that gap between the parameters of what sport should be in, in a kind of dimensional, bounded sense. And then within that, or pushing the edges of that, is the thing where the beauty and the artistry and the poetry of sport actually occurs. And, and that's where... That's why I'm not a, a, a fan, I don't think, of... You know, I don't want somebody particularly to win and somebody to lose, but I want to get that poetry and that artistry. And I think that that's where... That's why this film particularly appealed to me. And the way it sets it up, I mean, the, the Mathieu Almarac voiceover is so enigmatic, isn't it? You know what I mean? And yeah, just, just the way that these correlations that are happening all the way through in terms of, you know, the expansion of time that happens in cinema, it's, you know, it is very Deleuzean in that sense. So why did Serge Danet, the editor-in-chief of Cahiers du Cinéma, agreed in the 80s to write an article about tennis in the newspaper Libération? What common denominator between tennis and cinema would be able to get Danes' juices flowing. Uh, the length of time. Explanations. Cinema for me isn't at all about being amazed in front of a moving image. It's more about the sounds you hear, the sense of time, the race against time and fate. It's about telling stories about countdowns. There's also the underlying question, how much time is left before the end credits? In other words, what possibilities are there to create an extra bit of time? That's it. In my opinion, the thing that makes a great film is the invention of time. McEnroe is not a filmmaker, but he excels in the area of inventing time, 
thanks to his dexterity on the tennis court, it is he who dictates and who, as the attacking force, allows himself the right to say, cut, by coming to the net and shortening the rally. McEnroe was a master of concluding rallies, but he also loved being able to decide how they begin. He found it difficult when someone else wanted to take charge of exchanges, and he doesn't hesitate to ask the technicians under his orders for what reasons the film of the match has been interrupted. So if there's a serve, there's no point. Because if you saw the ball out, there's no point. Okay, and then it's out. The serve was out. No, you said you saw the serve out. There's no point then. This serve, why didn't anyone call it? Why didn't anyone call it? Okay, then it's a second serve, right? What? What's the problem? It's the second serve. The ball was out. The hater served. It was out. I don't understand. Can you bring the referee out, please? There's definitely a, a paper to be written on that and, and also kind of anthropological in terms of the, the patterns of behaviours. But then when he's sort of equating, you know, Robert De Niro to, to John McEnroe and puts this, the voiceover on the top, he's just, you know, that, that shouldn't work by rights, but it's really, it's really good. What it does is it kind of, it, yeah, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It, it makes you realise what McEnroe is doing that's not sport. Yeah. You know, like that he, he understands the limits of, hitting a ball backwards and forwards. So what else is there that is going to put him in the put him in a winning position, which is about his yeah. relationship with the crowd, his relationship with the umpire, his relationship with his opponent. And himself. And himself, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and, he t- and of course, you know, the great thing about the film, well, I think the great thing about the film is, is that it doesn't pay off. No. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know the result. So I'm kind yeah, of watching yeah, yeah. it going, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a performance that might, because of the fact that there's, there's another opponent and there's, there's the... That opponent, that opponent is hitting back, and whether you can whether you can perform your way into their mind or not is going to be the key to it's going to be key to that. And it's, obviously that's why it's the final, which is which is you know you're you're playing someone who's not not going to fall as easily. Um, yeah, I just it's a it's a brilliant movie for that reason. And yeah, that, that thing about kind of Tom Hulse watch McEnroe. Yeah, that's that's playing Amadeus like what? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. But I think you know what you're saying there about that. that it just made me think of teaching, you know, we're sort of saying like that there's the sport on paper, you know, the textbook of how to play tennis. And then there's there's tennis as played. And that's for me the same as in terms of filmmaking. And this is a film about filmmaking and about the construction of film as opposed to not just cinema as an ideological concept, but as as the construction of how things are put together in order to kind of to to create a certain experience and certain feeling in spectators. And I teach, you know, like. I don't. I think you know you, what he says there is like you, there's there's tennis in the book and then there's something else, and it's for me it's the same as film. Like I could just give my students a, a, a guide how to make a short film, or and Robert McKee's story and say, well that's that's cinema, that's how you do it. But then if they were to watch Kira Starmi or Lynn Ramsey, they would be like, well that's not. And it's like no, because that's how you actually do it when you make it. When you actually go out there and you treat it as an art form, that's how it's done. It, you reverse engineering and, and try and put it in a book it doesn't work you know and all the all of the people that inspire me in terms of film are the people who've seen it as uh, a movable feast as not as as kind of it has boundaries in order for it to work for an audience and to be considered a quote unquote film 
it needs to have certain things but within that space there is a, a kind of infinite possibilities that can be stretched and pushed and the best sports people do that as well i'll watch any sport at the elite level i think we talked about this before to see people pushing pushing that rule book and that that mandate not cheating per se but but through physical ability through imagination through huckstering whatever it is just where are the gaps where are the spaces where is where is the next where is the game going to be moved to at the end where when you look at football now it's unrecognizable in terms of where it was in the 1900s taking aside the bad money side but as a game in terms of what the players have done and that's the same for every sport what have the players done what did michael jordan do to basketball that changed the game you know and how it was played and how people conceived of it and that's what's fascinating is watch those people say i don't care about the book yeah i kind of know the book i know the rules but i also know that there's there's space to be manipulated with and you know the McEnroe doc is watching this person really do that and also yeah how again the, the filmmaker saw in McEnroe like you sort of said like the, the film says there's so much more footage of him that year than anyone else because they, they know that this is a subject which is going to reveal more things than just how you play tennis that comes out a lot in the in the Serge Denis article, which is kind of like how the sport has changed from being a sport of gentlemen to a sport of violence. And, you know, particularly around the, these three characters, really, in the 80s, McEnroe, Connors and Lendl. You know, there's elements of the film that I think are just so fascinating in terms of their, their allegories between sport and cinema. And particularly, I mean, it gets into it about what documentaries do. That question of when you put a camera on something, you know, does the, do, does the audience act you know would it would they act the same way if the camera wasn't there or do you have to accept the fact that the presence of the cam camera actually alters reality and that sense i think that, that McEnroe is aware of everything around him is changing him yeah it's just it's just there's so many fascinating little nuances and that, that all the stuff about perfectionism is really is really interesting as well it's you know he is he sees everybody around him, the umpires, everyone, his opponent as not being able to live up to that level of perfectionism and sort of playing on that. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that you didn't know that the result of that, because I've, I've read McEnroe's book and he never won another Grand Slam after this match. And he was only, what was he, 26, 27? And he, he says that he can't, he still today can't deal with this loss. And it's just, it's fascinating how how much this this particular match impacted on, on him as a, a human being. And, you know, it's funny because it's like, I was talking talking with Finley about that, the trauma of not making it as a sports person. You know, you just realise, as you get, do get older, you thought, you know, I never would have. I, I didn't have a woulda, coulda, shoulda moment at all. But you think about a, a, a guy like, like McEnroe and, you know, you always sort of, what, what a life to lead, I always think, McEnroe's life. You know, he did, best tennis player in the world in the in the early eighties. Became a um, art gallery owner, connoisseur, rock star. You know, known all, all around the world. He is the he's still the number one draw in in you know in many ways in in tennis when it comes and and now commentator probably the most revered or listened to commentator as well. And it's that idea of somebody like that being one of these old school movie stars. You know, a, a sort of renaissance man across different areas is not something that you would have, you know, you, you would have associated with him back in the 1980s, but just an amazing sort of character in that way, I think. Yeah, and it's almost like the, that, that failure kind of allows those other things to, 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 to become possible. You know, I think that 
what's what is clear by the end is that you know if he can't if he can't achieve perfection in that way then he just feels utterly bereft you know and like he sort of says in the film it's kind of no surprise he didn't win because it's like it was so close he was so close that year he was so close in that tournament you know every and he just couldn't he couldn't get it over the line in the way that he felt was his idea of, of how it should be done and it's just it's just mad i think what was what it reminds of is like is is, is like say what how those how they're in control of of what they can do which is always what made the, the zidane film really remarkable i think because the experience of watching that is watching someone who you get the sense can can dictate everything that happens in a game in a way that just feel like you just because there's 21 other players thinks how is that even possible you know in that game he does nothing for 45 minutes literally the first 45 minutes is you, he doesn't do anything he touches the ball a few times he's not involved like he's kind of watching a lot of the time also almost as if to say you know i know you're waiting for me to do something and then in the second half he's like gets an assist he scores a goal and he gets sent off and obviously he can only control one of those things but he manages in the space of a film where the only time he's being filmed in this game to do all the things that he give he creates the sense that he's in charge of everything that goes on which we know is not possible and that's what you know that's what the two films have in, in the sense is watching someone who is so in control of something that you just know is not controllable to that degree it's absolutely fascinating and how the doc, the McEnroe doc, and well, the, Z- the Dan doc's different because it's just yeah, it's just you know, one it's just game, him. isn't it? It's one game, and it's just on him. Yeah, it yeah, follows yeah, yeah. him throughout. But uh, yeah, I mean, just the fact that he could he could he could do all that in in a half of football, let alone a game of football, is is kind of amazing. But the film understands what McEnroe is trying to do because it's kind of it's filmmaking. You know, it's it, there's a construction to it, there's a narrative to it, there is there's a relationship between time and space to it that is that feels very similar at least in the way that that filmmaker is seeing it that then they can draw out for us to go oh actually that makes incredible sense um and feels really resonant yeah. have, you, have you watched any of these um all or nothing docs on uh, on street on amazon prime i think they are or the or the jordan one have you watched that yet i haven't seen the jordan one no again because it's it's tv in terms of investment yeah. it's not tv in, you know like it's it feels like a, a big investment that's why i always love films because <laughs> it's like you know um so yeah i haven't i haven't seen any of those but i know you've been you've been digging into them and also kind of some of the discourse around it's great it's really really good and i think it's a combination of the level of access they've got they've got interviews all the way through with jordan as a talking head and all of his teammates and all the people who hated him you know what I mean? And all the people he hated. And it's just great when you get somebody commenting on their own. Somebody who knows they're that good. And it's a similar thing we were just saying to McEnroe and Zidane. It's like that that control of the, of themselves and everyone else around them. And that control, it seems like they control time. Like in basketball, to make the final clutch shot with like 0.3. So the ball comes in, he turns, jumps and shoots with somebody who's seven foot doing this on top of him and still makes the basket and and just just watching somebody who is that that good is is fascinating and in a in a way that's difficult to it's transcendental it's difficult to to intellectualize i think you know we have we've had this argument about musicians and the idea of you know somebody who's a virtuoso and which i respect more than the other side of it which is you know it's, it's like i'm always just impressed by somebody who's just brilliant at something it, it puts all of that together in an absolutely, in a really professionally efficient way for a documentary that keeps you 
keeps you invested all the way through. And I think what's what's interesting is it does reveal it does it doesn't shy away from revealing you know the elements of Michael Jordan's personality that make him the way that he was. He was he does come come across as as kind of arrogant and self centered in the same way that that Lance Armstrong does. You know, in the in the in the Lance doc, the the ESPN one, which is the four hour long one, and it just makes you realize that these the you know life of a professional sports person they have to be completely self centered really to get there, and and even more so if they are the man. <laughs> let's put it that way. You know, um, yeah, it's it's definitely it is definitely worth investing. I've watched it more than once now, all the way through, and it's yeah, it, it it's worth your time, and in. Interesting, I think that it it doesn't. I don't think it serves as PR in the way that some of these these other ones do. You know, the one about Manchester City and Tottenham this year, and there was one about Leeds United, which I I watched uh, coming from Leeds, which is fa- you know fascinating. But there's there is a sort of PR element to that, and I think it reminds me that 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 sports is fighting for space now on so many different fronts, and I I don't know whether the we're going to have the days anymore where, say, for example, when I, one the big sporting moment that sort of, you know, I remember the f- earliest sporting moment that really did influence me was Boris Becker winning the the Wimbledon title in, in 85. And somebody who was 17 years old, sort of a few years older than me, was doing that. And it just sticks in my mind because it was so, it was so big because the media around it was so enclosed. You know, there's three TV channels. It was everywhere. And, and sport, I think, is fighting you know, computer games, fighting the internet, fighting everything. So they're having to let go of those barriers. Like the the dressing room was this space that just w- was off limits to, to, to anyone apart from the, the players and management, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, kind of in terms of the, that space, you know, someone like Jordan, you know, some of the things I was sort of reading and, and sort of hearing about was that it's PR in the sense that, you know, there's someone that people are saying rivals him, you know, so there's LeBron yep. and it's like, is it, you know, it's, it's, he had the foresight to record everything that year, which is amazing. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but again, he's in control. Yep. He knows yep. you, it feels like actually they're in control of stuff that they're not. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, that, that now is the time to remind people and to, and to say, Oh, look what I did. I recorded yeah, this stuff yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it shows you, it shows you what I did. You know, I think it's, he doesn't need it for um, financial no. reasons. Um, he's a very wealthy man, but like you say, that that, that he's still that competitive person who's arrogant about yeah, how good yeah, he was yeah. and he wants to win and he wants to win the all-time number one. Yep. So he's kind of pulling this out of the bag, which I think is again another reminder of why why he was the person that yep. he was. Yep. You know, because he's not just going to let someone be considered his equal. He's going to be. He's going to remind people of why he's he is the greatest. But he can do it in a way because his extension was beyond the sport. He built an identity empire, which means he understands the value of having material that can become a film that tells the world how great you are, you know, which again is just kind of a measure of his astuteness in a different arena. I do want to see it. I do want to see it. I do, you know. You need to, I think it's one of those where you need to find the the space. Yeah, I'm going to watch it in 2023 is what I'm going to watch. (laughs) Well, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those where you think, oh, actually, I mean... Like sometimes you'll see something that you know what I'm going to save that to the to the, the 
to the days after Christmas, in between Christmas and New Year, I'm going to just blitz that, that kind of thing. Sometimes I'll do that. And it's it's one of those to give to give plenty of attention to. So, uh, yeah, I recommend it. But, um, yeah, thanks for indulging me in, in all of that, Neil. That was uh, really good fun. Enjoyed that. No, I mean, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a subject close to my heart as well. So, yeah, thank you for thank you for kind of keep pushing to get it to get yeah. it on and to do the interview which is a yeah, really great interview um, yeah it's been fantastic I've really enjoyed this excellent so that will do it for this episode of the Cinematologist podcast you can contact us in all the usual ways we are on Twitter um, on email cinematologist at gmail.com um, as we said if you really enjoy what we do and you want to help us out just with the running costs uh, $2.50 a month for our bonus content on the Patreon and our newsletters uh, next one to come probably in about a week or 10 days time so thank you very much to our audience for their continued support and this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.